So you're coming in the lectionary to the prodigal son and the first part of me is going, yes, great, my favorite story. And then the other part of me went, even Isaac was able to take us through this story. So you guys, as soon as we say there was a father with two sons, you know it. So you could just drift off now and work out when City are going to drop points or if Liverpool are going to drop points or why Jacob Stockdale just didn't dive over the line or do whatever else is in your mind at the moment rather than listen to this unless we can get something fresh out of it. Then you've got to be careful because in getting something fresh out of it you could make it up and it wouldn't be from the scriptures at all. So I went on a bit of a sort of a journey across Old Testament commentators on the prodigal son. Now, some of this is good. I need to say that because of the first one. I couldn't help, as I was reading at this time, looking for something fresh, of going back to when Desi was doing Genesis with us in our Bible literacy series. Because what we learned about Genesis when we were getting the context or getting the historical context of Genesis and when we were taking a sweep across Genesis is that there was two sons across it. A younger son and an older son the whole way across the book of Genesis. And here we have, in the middle of a Jewish culture, Jesus talking about two sons. And without question, without question, I imagine that some in the crowd were back into Genesis, thinking maybe about Esau and Jacob, for instance. Which took me to Kenneth Bailey. Kenneth Bailey's a commentator I really love because he grew up in Middle Eastern culture and therefore when he comes to the parables of the scriptures he has a wee bit more insider information than I have and he has a whole book that bases the prodigal and Esau and Jacob together. So I looked at that. And then I read some that even saw this as the two houses of Israel and I'm thinking I'm not sure we're getting a wee bit far-fetched on this one. But so many people have different ideas. In fact where Kenneth Bailey would rightfully say, or not rightfully say, because I'm not going to be the one who makes the judgment on right, but on my opinion seems to be saying something right, is that that we take for granted that when he asked the father for his part of the estate, he was basically saying, I wish you were dead. Another commentator actually said that's nonsense in the law of Judaism at that time. But I, So you're into all this stuff and you're thinking, by Sunday can I get this so right? that I'm not going to be wrong in Fitzroy because you never want to be wrong in Fitzroy. And then I thought, do you know what? I think all those things might have come into the minds of some around. And I think actually there might be a richness to this story if we could do a PhD and work on out what they all were. But Luke, Luke wasn't writing primarily for a Jewish culture in some sense because he was writing for a Gentile, writing this all into uh, Acts and Luke, Theophilus, and trying to get it across to a Gentile. So he might not even have been as interested in Genesis and the working out of this as maybe a Matthew would have been when he was editing his text. So what I decided to do after reading all this stuff away out there in another land, I decided to come home. And I decided, well, what? let's focus in on just what we have in the lectionary. Because the lectionary in this one's quite smart. Because we read the first few verses of the chapter before we get into the story of the prodigal son. So what's Luke's context for telling the story? The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with, and eats with them. 
Then Jesus told this parable. So at least it can say whether I've got all the Old Testament stuff wrong or not. At least it can say that the context of the story is this constant battle between the Pharisees, who were a wee bit more holy than thou, and the ordinary people who were going around with Jesus who could never think that they would be Pharisees or that God would love them, but are suddenly embraced in the love of this rabbi and are beginning to question whether he's God or not. And we have, of course, two stories before this one. And the only thing to say about them is that those first two stories that we hear in chapter 15 are people who would be in the margins of society and in poverty, whereas the story of the prodigal son seems to be a little bit more on the edge of BT9, where farmland begins to come in. There's a little bit of wealth in the room. There's a little bit of land in the room. There's an inheritance in the room. This is the wealthier rather than the poor. And if we look at all the characters, the prodigal's the obvious one. He's lost and we've done all the dramas that I used to do where you go off to London and you drink it away and you uh, party and do all that kind of stuff. The prodigal son in this story is the one that's easy to say he was definitely lost. Now the other son that bless him comes in as the, uh, uh, the kind of begrudger at the end of it doesn't really get the time that the, the I was going to say the first prodigal gets. And actually, we're not too far away from that, even though prodigal would mean wasted living. And in some ways, actually, I'm thinking on my feet here, the second son has wasted, has wasted the inheritance that was right there with him. Because he says, you never give me a goat, but the father said, but all I have is yours. So he was kind of living a life that was wasting the possibility and the potential of living with the father and the farm. But what we find as we read through the whole story is that both sons are lost. One is lost in his utter sinfulness and rebelliousness, and the other son is lost in his own self-righteousness and a works mentality that will keep him in with the father. But none of the two of them have really experienced the extravagant love of the father as the story sets out, but do in the end. Because this is, I think, the heart of the story. I sometimes think, Jesus told a quick story to make one point and we've been writing dissertations on it ever since and Jesus is up there going, Holy Spirit, will you tell them that just one point I was trying to make here and there's not all this other stuff in it, tell Stockman to shut up and just concentrate on the love of the Father. That might be it, but I do think in this story there are all kinds of maybe layers in there as well. But the love of the Father is absolutely exceptional here because the Pharisees and the sinners who were gathering around Jesus and listening to the story, you can see that the sinners are saying, well, that's me. And he's going home. And how's it going to be when he goes home? And how did he have the courage and humility to go home? How did he have the humility to say, I wasted all that money, but I'm still going to go home. Even if I'm going to be a servant, you have to go back through the village. You have to go back up the Lisburn Road. All the cafes are going to be out on the street because it's coming springtime and they're all going to be, uh-oh, he left with a lot of money and looking very dapper and look at the state of him now. He didn't, did he? Did he lose all that money? Oh my goodness me. He had to walk through that with the humble walk, with the walk of shame and then consider what his father might do to him. And the, and the sinners are listening because they know that's them. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are saying, we're going to see some thunder and lightning here because this boy needs a darn good thrashing. And then the father runs towards the son and turns it all on its head. Then all the listeners are going, this is an upside down kingdom. This rabbi is different. There is a different message here. 
and we find the utter lavish, actually ridiculous, almost overindulgent grace of God. The band Mumford and Sons came to my rescue after all the commentaries. All the Old Testament experts and then remembered those lines. We've done a communion around this way back in time. We should do it again. It seems that all my bridges have been burned. You see in the prodigal here? All his bridges are burned. He's taken the inheritance and pretty much turned that to ashes. It seems that all my bridges have been burned. But you say, that's exactly how this grace thing works. So all the bridges are burned. We're walking home. He has no idea what this grace thing's going to be like in a moment. Here's the key. Mumford and Sons. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart. But the welcome I receive with the restart. It's not the long walk home that will change the heart. But the welcome I receive at the restart. And actually, the prodigal knew that long walk home. The prodigal knew that he was dependent on that grace. The prodigal knew that his bridges had been burned. The prodigal knew that the only hope he had was welcome or damnation at the moment of re-entry. The older brother didn't seem to know that it's not the long obedience that saves the heart or changes the heart. It's not the long trying to keep the law and be the good son that changes the heart. For both sons, it's the welcome we receive at the restart. And that took me to a new angle. I got there eventually. I started to think about home. The home where the father was waiting. The home where the older brother was living. The home where the younger brother disappeared from. Now he's in another land. He's very far from home. He's burnt his bridges and it's a long walk back home. So what was it? What was it as he was feeding those pigs? What was it as he thought about home that made him come to his senses? There was something about that home. There was something about that father. There was something about the way the father treated the servants. There was something that that boy knew was actually going to be a good chance it would be welcoming. What was it? There was something that the father had created within that home, even that the older son hadn't really got to terms with, that the younger son knew was going to be all right, was worth the shout. That actually, I can take this long walk home. I can do the walk of shame. And I think my father, at the very least of what I know about him, is going to let me at least be a servant. And that's where the Old Testament began to speak in for me. Because the covenant, the covenant that God made with Abraham meant that every time the children of Israel, the people of God, the Jewish people walked away. And how many times during that Old Testament do they walk away that God talks about being a parent who has helped them to learn to walk 
and he's ready to have them home. What we think about God, I've said many times here, is the most important thing about us. And what the young son thought about his father was the most important thing about him. Because there was enough at home to say to him, I'm prepared to go back there. I think I might get a welcome. The older son, we don't know what happens to him. Oh, he's welcomed back. It's a shorter walk. But at the end of the story, we don't know whether he takes it or not because the self-righteous around Jesus are not sure whether they will take it or not either. But there was something about home. Here's the big ask. Here's the big question. And I'm sorry I'm asking it on Mother's Day because there's only half of you here. Fitzroy. Fitzroy. Our son or daughter in the furthest place. Geographically. Mentally. Emotionally. Or spiritually. Have we given them enough of home? And the center of the Father's grace in Fitzroy. That wherever they are. They will know. That there might be a welcome here. If they've gone away for a period of time. Would they know. That they would get a welcome here. Because what we have to do here. Is not have a Sunday morning. Where we have brilliant new worship. Written even by David himself. Or we get the worship right. Or we get our theology right. Or we get the children's address that's going to attract the children to listen. Or that we do it well. Or that we're out for 20 past 12. Those are not the most important thing that happens right now. In fact, dare I say it. And I know I get paid for this bit of it. The bit that might be most important. Is going to happen after I do the benediction in there. Because we don't respond to creed. Or liturgy. Or the time we're out of church. We respond to what something makes us feel. Yes, I'm sure that I'm sure the prodigal considered a lot of stuff and weighed a lot of stuff up about the character of his father. But I think there was something in the core of the prodigal son that said, I know that if I go back. My father is going to, I knew how I felt when I was there. There was something about my father that was loving and unconditionally loving. And therefore, I'm going to go back there. Because I trust that feeling I had or those relationships that I have. Oh, I'm not knocking for a minute our creeds. I'm not knocking for a minute what we do on a Sunday morning in the service. I'm not knocking for a minute the fact that we need to worship God. And as I prayed last week, whether we do it physically, we've got to do it in our posture spiritually. We've got to be like our Muslim brothers and sisters and bend on our knee before a God to get our place in the universe again. To get our place in his kingdom again. But I still think that people come to church. And I still think that people come back to church. And I still think that we welcome many new people into this church because of how they feel when they come in. Because they feel a warmth. Because they feel welcomed. Because they feel they might belong. Let me finish and I know I might be over the time although that says five past eleven and I like that. 
Another musician, it just happened last night to be scanning across looking for something to put up in my blog and I found this um, blog I'd written maybe five years ago about a band called Arcade Fire. And the guy in Arcade Fire, I think he might have grown up Seventh-day Adventist, but you can tell from the quote that he went to church, but I couldn't believe as I read it just what I was reading in the context of today. This was in, I think it was in the Observer magazine at one stage. I had, I had somewhat a religious upbringing. Not strict, but it was there. And I'm kind of thankful for that. If you grew up just watching MTV, that's its own form of religion and it's not even based on happiness or or communal responsibility. I mean, I try to construct a worldview out of that. The religion still pays some part. Here's what he goes on to say. It sounds, I say, both from uh, his conversion and his recent... No, this is the journalist. Um, It sounds, the journalist says, both from the conversation of his recent songs, like he still misses the faith-based sense of community. Yes, I guess I do, he says. I'm not practicing. I don't go to church. But what I got from it was a sense of a belonging to something bigger. That's what we need to create. And I think that's what the Father created. A sense of something bigger than it's just a house and there's two and there was probably a mother and it's a shame on Mother's Day that the mother's not in the story. There might have been more children. A sense of belonging. That's what the world's looking for. A sense of home. A sense of belonging. He goes on, what I really miss, I love this, and this Fitzroy is where I think we have a strength and we need to develop. What I really miss is being forced to be in a community with people that aren't the same as you. Oh, I'm looking across at you. Oh, there's a whole lot here that aren't the same as you, I tell you. What a menagerie of difference we are in this little building. He says, um, what I really miss is being forced to be in a community with people that aren't the same as you. Then you really have to work through the ways that you're different. I think that's important, and it's missing in youth culture. I guess some of the songs are a reaction against the tyranny of youth culture. (coughs) Excuse me. Where you only hang around the people who dress like you, think like you, and listen to the same music as you. And what Wynne Butler's saying here is that the right sort of home, the right sort of belonging, is a community of people that with grace and respect can hold together the older brother and the younger brother. Can hold together the differences. And my goodness, there's differences across here. The denominations we've come from. The spiritual journeys that we've taken. The focus of the interest, whether it's theological or whether it's more devotional or whether it's missional or whether it's artistic or whatever it is within our DNA of who we are. We have different opinions about how to read the scripture. We've got different opinions of theologies. We have listening nights coming up soon over the whole LGBT thing. And in this room, we have every what sort of opinion and what the Bible has to say about that. And you know what? That's why I love being your minister. Because if we're in a monotheological, like the tyranny of youth culture that Wynne Butler talks about, then we don't have to question ourselves against somebody else. Then we don't have to learn the discipleship or the spiritual formation of loving those who differ from us in the family of God. As you two put it, we are one, but we are not the same. But we get to carry each other through sickness and death and whatever it is we struggle with as a community of belief. So this morning, out of the story of the prodigal son, 
if you're in a far off country, maybe not geographically, but spiritually, be assured, be assured. Remember back to what you've heard about this God because he is welcoming. And if you're wondering about those ones out there and those ones out there coming to faith and I don't know whether they come to faith or whatever else we think about them and we're an older brother or sister, let's surrender to the fact that it's got nothing to do with our goodness. It's the welcome at the restart that changes our lives. And then let's create meaningfully and intentionally a community of faith with deep relationships here in Fitzroy so that those who belong to us and we took vows over at communion might remember that covenant. And those on the street today who have no interest in church might, if they were looking for one, be able to know that they would get a welcome here. And that that welcome of God's grace and what Christ has done for us in the cross and resurrection might be what gives them a new start. A new start. It's not the long walk home that'll change this heart. It's the welcome we receive at the restart. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just be a church that meets on a Sunday morning for an hour and 20 minutes in pews that we don't know the person living or sitting on the other side of the church, but that we would be a community of faith that would be in relationship with one another and relationship with you in such a way that others might see grace, the grace of a father's sacrificial love at the center of our community, that they might know this was a place of welcome and that that welcome would be the grace that brings a new start. Start with us, whether we're prodigal or whether we're self-righteous older son. Help us to have the humility to say it's not about us, it's about God. And help us to receive your welcome and to make the most of the welcome that you give us to live life in all its fullness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.